0: I.V.M. Hello and welcome to States of Anarchy, a podcast on global affairs and foreign policy. I'm your host, Hamsani Hariharan. Every week on the show, I tackle issues in global affairs and foreign policy, all in the hope of making a little more sense of the world around us. This is our special Q&A episode. Where I answer questions that you've sent on Instagram or Twitter or email. And to be honest, it's my favorite part of the show. Let's begin. Today, we have two questions, both about minorities and how states respond to differences. The first is from Vikas Ravi on Twitter. Vikas had said, I had just read an article in the BBC about the systematic rape and torture endured by the women in education camps. I wanted to know a bit of their history and what brought about the current situation. And what exactly is the government's agenda, other than an ethnic cleansing maybe? And can a foreign agency or government intervene if the evidence is genuine? This is probably a lot to answer. So Vikas's context is that he's talking about Uyghur women in China and the crackdown on Uyghurs. This is a lot to answer, but extremely relevant now, considering how the uproar about Xinjiang cotton has swept China and the world. If you need to talk about the Uyghurs, then it has a long historical and cultural history. There are about 12 million Uyghurs, mostly Muslim, living in northwestern China in the region of Xinjiang, officially known as the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. The Uyghurs speak their own language, similar to Turkish, and they see themselves as culturally and ethnically closer to Central Asian nations. They make up less than half the population of Xinjiang. So what is Xinjiang? Xinjiang is a region in northwestern China. It's one of the driest places in the world, because it's surrounded completely by mountains like the Himalayas, the Pamirs, and the Steppes. In fact, the region was one of the last on earth to be inhabited, well after agriculture was developed. The Xinjiang region was thinly populated by herders and oasis farmers, organized into small kingdoms and tribal alliances. The Silk Road, which was a trade route between Europe and Asia, passed through this region. Now, Xinjiang was incorporated into the Chinese empire, when it was conquered by the Mongol leader Genghis Khan in the 13th century. But it was only under the Qing Empire that it finally came under what we think as quote-unquote Chinese territory. In 1884, the Qing government created a new Xinjiang province. But even then, it was a frontier region with the warlords who governed it effectively independent. You have to remember that Xinjiang was at the border of the USSR, which had many people following Islam along its borders. And so in modern history, Xinjiang was filled with revolts and rebellions and shifting allegiances between the Kuomintang and the USSR. When the Communist Party came to power, Xinjiang was incorporated as a region and was made into an autonomous province as a concession to the non-Han people who lived there. The Communist Party also motivated a lot of Han people to shift to Xinjiang, to change the demographic balance. And this is something that they've done in Tibet as well. But frustrations led to an upsurge of resistance by clandestine militant groups inside Xinjiang and others in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Pakistan. Now, we know that the Chinese government does not take kindly to resistance. So after an Uyghur demonstration in 1995, Beijing issued document number 7. It identified the conflict in Xinjiang as the most serious threat to the Chinese state and carried out a strike-hard campaign. So the repression against the strike-hard campaign became permanent. Anyone suspected of sympathies for separatism could be detained without trial. And this could be anything from advocating to an independent Uyghur state or involvement in illegal religious activities. In 2009, there were clashes between Uyghurs and Han Chinese in the regional capital, Urumqi, and many people died. So the Chinese government reacted by detaining thousands of Uyghurs and even executing many. Under Xi Jinping, the freedom to practice religion has become even more restricted in China. So in 2017, he issued an order saying all religions in China should be Chinese in orientation. And then that led to further crackdowns. Some 800,000 to 2 million Uyghurs and other Muslims, including ethnic Kazakhs and Uzbeks, have been detained since April 2017, according to experts and government officials. So what are their crimes? A report by the Council on Foreign Relations says, and I quote, The detainees seem to have been targeted for a variety of reasons, according to media reports, including traveling to or contacting people from any of the 26 countries China considers sensitive, such as Turkey and Afghanistan, attending services at mosques, having more than three children, and sending texts containing Quranic verses. Often, their only crime is being Muslim, human rights groups say, adding that many Uyghurs have been labeled as extremists simply for practicing their religion. End quote. Information on what actually happens in the camp is limited. But many detainees who fled China describe harsh conditions. They say that they are forced to pledge loyalty to the CCP and renounce Islam, as well as sing praises for communism and learn Mandarin. Some people reported prison-like conditions, with cameras and microphones monitoring their every move and utterance. Others said that they were tortured and subjugated to sleep deprivation during interrogations. Women have shared stories of sexual abuse, including rape, Apart from interning Uyghurs in camps, China has been forcibly mass sterilizing Uyghur women to suppress the population and even separating Uyghur children from their families. In December 2020, some research showed that up to half a million people were being forced to pick cotton. There is evidence that new factories have been built within the grounds of these re education camps. So Vikas had asked what exactly is the government's agenda other than an ethnic cleansing, maybe? China has said that these reports that it has detained Uyghurs are completely untrue. It says that the crackdown is necessary to prevent terrorism and to root out Islamic extremism, and that the camps are an effective tool for re-educating inmates in its fight against terrorism. It insists that Uyghur militants are waging a violent campaign for an independent state by plotting bombings, sabotage, and civic unrest. This is the official line. Now, the Chinese government prioritizes social stability, and it's worried that because Xinjiang is a border state, Uyghurs would get influenced by violent extremists and that foreigners could use these fault lines to encourage separatism. Following the 9-11 attacks, the Chinese government started justifying its actions towards Uyghurs as a part of the global war on terrorism. It said it would combat what it calls the three evils, separatism, religious extremism, and international terrorism at all costs. So they view the camps as a way of eliminating threats to China's territorial integrity, government, and population. And they also say that these factories and re-education camps are part of their poverty alleviation plans. Now, you have to remember that Xinjiang is an important link in China's Belt and Road Initiative. Beijing wants to eradicate any possibility of such separatist activity so that it can continue its development of Xinjiang, which is also home to its largest coal and natural gas resources. Now, on to Vikas's second question. He'd asked... Can a foreign agency or government intervene if the evidence is genuine? Several countries, including the US, Canada, and the Netherlands, have accused China of committing genocide. Now, genocide is defined by international convention as the intent to destroy, in whole or part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. Countries won't militarily intervene simply because costs are high. Take the case of Afghanistan and Syria, where human rights were one of the reasons cited for US and NATO intervention. But China is not Afghanistan or Syria. It's a large, powerful state. What countries have been doing is raising awareness. Now consider what's happening right now with Xinjiang Cotton. Last year, the outgoing Trump administration intensified sanctions against China, particularly under the Uyghur Human Rights Act in July. On his last day at office, the former US Secretary of State made a strong statement as he argued that the Chinese government's actions against Uyghurs were genocide. In January 2021, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency announced a blanket ban on Xinjiang cotton when it said that it would seize goods from the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps. This has hit companies across the world because of the entangled nature of global supply chains. China produces 20% of the world's cotton and 85% of that cotton is from Xinjiang. Now, China has hit back. It's sanctioned academics who wrote reports on Xinjiang, and it's even released a Bollywood-style movie based in Xinjiang, which shows an idyllic life. The problem with any form of intervention is simply that it gets caught up within larger geopolitics. In this case, it's the US trade war. In doing this, we forget to place the people who are suffering at the center of our focus. This is one of the pitfalls of international relations. And that leads us to our second question for today's episode from Pranjal. Pranjal asks, what is Sri Lanka's burqa ban all about? Does Sri Lanka also have a France-like secularism model? Thanks for your question, Pranjal. Sri Lanka recently proposed a burqa ban, and it's quite curious given how small the proportion of Muslims in the country actually is. So an Indian Express article reported that on March 16th, Sri Lanka's public security minister, Sarat Shekara said that the government would soon ban the burqa. He said that he had signed off on the proposal, which now requires cabinet and parliamentary approval. If the ban goes through, as it most likely will, Sri Lanka will be among a handful of non-Muslim countries, mostly in Europe, where the government is outlawed. Now, to understand the reasoning behind the proposal, we need to go back to the devastating 2019 Easter bombings in Sri Lanka. Two years ago, six suicide bombers targeted crowded churches, bustling luxury hotels, and housing complexes through a series of coordinated attacks. 250 people died. The aftermath of the 2019 bombings saw Sri Lanka imposing a temporary ban on the wearing of burkas and it disguised this as a ban on all face coverings. That time, Veera Shekra announced that 1,000 madrasas will also be shut down. The burqa ban has officially been linked to national security and Islamist extremism. Veer Sekra said the burqa, and I quote, is something that directly affects our national security. This came to Sri Lanka only recently. It's a symbol of the religious extremism, end quote. But these steps are a violation of human rights and the freedom of religious expression. Under the Prevention of Terrorism Act, the government can detain anyone for up to two years for the purpose of de-radicalization. This would entail harbouring extremist ideas or spreading religious, communal or ethnic hatred. An opinion piece in The Diplomat mentions that Muslims only make up 10% of the total population of Sri Lanka, alongside 70% that is Buddhist and 15% that is Tamil. Only a small percentage of Sri Lanka's Muslim women wear the burqa. And that's a fraction of 22 million people, the population of Sri Lanka. It's quite strange that the government sees this as a threat Most Muslim women who do choose to wear it would be happy to identify themselves for national security reasons. The ban is likely to increase the feeling among Sri Lankan Muslims that they are being collectively punished for the actions of few in the community. The terrorist group ISIS's leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, had claimed responsibility for the Easter Sunday attacks days after it took place. And banning the burqa will only isolate Muslims and cause further fear in an already vulnerable community. Women's groups had protested the temporary niqab ban at that time as twofold discrimination against religion and against women. There is no community order in Sri Lanka demanding that Muslim women should wear a burqa. In fact, not many Sri Lankan Muslim women wear it, although now more than ever they do. But for those who do, as in many other places of the world, It's a matter of personal choice based on identity or just modesty. Now, Mahinda Rajapaksha's regime has been clearly victimizing and singling out minority Muslims into millions. First in his term as president and now as prime minister, these two communities have faced attacks on houses, businesses and homes. The anti-Muslim sentiment in Sri Lanka has been predominant since the 2014 Alut Gama riots, when many Muslims were killed by hardline extremists. With his brother, Gotabaya Rajapaksha, in power since 2019, the Rajapaksha administration is openly using their power and influence to reprimand the Muslim community. Sri Lanka's burqa ban announcement was soon after Switzerland's ban on March 8th, which came after a national referendum. The UN Human Rights Council was highly critical of this decision, labeling the Swiss ban discriminatory and deeply regrettable. The Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights said in a statement, and I quote, vague justifications on how the wearing of face coverings would be a threat to safety, health, or the rights of others cannot be considered a legitimate reason for such an invasive restriction of fundamental freedoms. It also added that in the wake of a political publicity campaign with strong xenophobic undertones, Switzerland is joining a small number of countries where actively discriminating against Muslim women is now sanctioned by law. Coming to whether Sri Lanka also has a secularism model like France, the simple answer is no. Historically, France has been the most formidable advocate of rejecting the authority of religion over state. But you have to remember that in the past 50 years, the influx of Muslim immigrants and their children have dramatically changed the demographics of France. Now, Islam is the second largest religion in France. So when the French government banned face coverings, It was argued that they went against the country's commitment to secularism, or the principle of laicite, as set down in their constitution. When it was challenged, the European Court of Human Rights upheld the French ban and found it permissible on the basis that it encouraged the principle of living together. However, the court did reject several arguments put forth in support of the ban. The Sri Lankan proposal, on the other hand, very little of it is known as of yet, but it doesn't really make any case for equality, integration, or secularism. The decision for the proposed burqa ban in Sri Lanka received a lot of backlash, both domestically and in the international community. According to an ORF report, the Foreign Ministry released a statement emphasizing the need for broader dialogue with all parties concerned, adding that sufficient time will be taken for necessary consultations to be held and that consensus would be reached. The Foreign Secretary, Jayant Kolumbijh, has said that the decision has not been taken by the government to impose such a ban and that it is just a proposal that is under discussion. Other officials strongly believe that decisions with regard to the ban have to be taken in a timely manner and that an open dialogue should have place. For now, the proposal is not law and we'll have to see how the authorities consider the backlash against it. Anyway, that brings us to the end of this episode of States of Anarchy. Thank you for tuning in. Also, thanks to Vikas and Pranjal for their questions. If you have any questions about anything in international relations, then you can get in touch. You can email me at ibmstatesavanaki at gmail.com, or you can slide into my DMs on Instagram at statesofanarchy or on Twitter at Hamsani h If you want to show us some love, send this episode to someone who you think may enjoy it. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast app if you want to be more involved, check out our Insta page where we post regularly about foreign policy and even quizzes where you can check out how much you know about the world. This episode was scripted along with the help of Ayushmita Bhattacharji. You can listen to States of Anarchy not only on the IBM podcast app or website, but also on iTunes, Spotify, CastBox, Google Podcasts, or whatever you're using right now. We will be back next week.